Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts. Time for an overall. Let's do it. Glad to have you back with me one more time, literally from all over the world, spanning the globe with common sense during these uncommon times. At least that's how I look at it. Forewarned, I'm in the last reviews and revisions of this book I've been working on with and for former Cubs catcher, legendary uh, Cub Randy Hundley. And so I've been up since never mind how long, and I've gone through some serious gaffy. So I'm a little ramped up this morning. I actually waited till later in, on the Saturday morning to do the show because if I'd have done this in my normal time about 6.30, you probably wouldn't understand anything that came out of my mouth. Uh, but I'm coming down to the end of that project, and this is always, it, it's always the same. The topics, of course, are different. This is the seventh book I've done in about six and a half years, just about one a year for people who need a ghostwriter or, you know, something floats across my nose. And I really think a lot of this is some sort of divine assignment. It's an ordained thing. It's kind of kismet that I intersect with certain people at certain times for certain reasons to create a book. And Randy is no exception, even though I know the guy 30 plus years and was one of those kids growing up on the, uh, you know, in, in, in the neighborhood waiting on the corner for an autograph. I still can't believe this has all happened. So Anyway, the process is always the same. You know, you have the initial, how am I going to do this? And then you have the second part, which is the longest part, which is, gosh, now I really got to do this. And you sit down and start writing. And then the last piece of it is once those two are out of the way, comes the detail work and, uh, you know, making sure everything's locked down and there's, we're not missing any commas or taking commas out. In my case, I tend to write like I speak, which is good unless it isn't, meaning I got to be careful with comma use because otherwise it's just kind of a, a bombing mission there. So, uh, it's all that's going on, and I'm coming down to about halfway through the final, final, final revisions. My highly significant other, Teresa, always does my backup work, and she'll check it all out when I'm done. And then hopefully uh, by All-Star break, which is around the July 9th to 10th, the 14th, somewhere in there this year, the book will be available, and everything I've been chatting about for the last few months, you'll be able to read. So I'm looking forward to that. However, I'm not talking about that money more today. I'm talking about Mother's Day, because that's what tomorrow is. And my mom's been gone... 26 years this January. And that's a, that's about a, you know, getting towards half of my lifetime, a little bit less than half my lifetime, but I like to be optimistic. And you know, when, when someone's gone that long out of your life, at least it is for me, there are pieces that are slipping away more and more. You know, she had this, um, this distinctive voice and I, I'm not being able to hear it as much in my head as I used to. Sometimes when I'm working, and I get really, really busy and I need to take a break. I'll, I'll turn everything off in my, my office here, my studio, and I'll just sit back and think of certain people who are no longer with me. Uh, there's a couple of reasons to do that. One is because obviously I miss them and I wish they were still here, right? And then the other part of it is I want to kind of remember the times we had together. So every now and again, when that time comes on me to take a, a mental vacation, I'll unplug everything here and I'll just sit back in my chair and close my eyes, put my feet up. And remember the barbecues in the backyard with all the family, you know, the whole deal. And I'm talking about extended family here. And 97% of those people are no longer on the planet. But I can kind of envision Uncle Chuck uh, and and my grandma Helen and 
you know, her and, and, and all of them, the aunts and the uncles and just on and on and on in our backyard, my dad barbecuing away, you know, in his, his Dago t-shirt, as we called it back then, no offense, but that's what they called him. There's another term I won't use, but anyway, they called him Dago t-shirts. Here's this guy in his white Dago t-shirt with, you know, black Bermuda shorts on wearing black socks to his knees with hard sole shoes in the yard. It's just crazy. Uh, either that or some sort of plaid type shorts, I'm sure. Great times and great memories. And my mom was just a piece of work on so many different levels. It took me years really to kind of put all the pieces together. And I found out so much about her more than I knew when she was alive. That's what the last 26 years have done. Teresa's a uh, a genealogist and a digger and uh, archaeologist. She's brought me mountains of information about my family that I had zero clue of. And it's greatly appreciated, but also a little bit more confounding because, you know, I, I'm starting to put pieces together that I didn't even know existed. And that sometimes gets a little interesting and dicey. But before I go any further, I wrote every year, I, you know, I read a little bit about her on Facebook. And a couple years ago, I wrote this. And it kind of encapsulates who this person was to me. Tough as nails, with a heart for all the four-legged strays. Benson and Hedges smoking, F-bomber with the best of them. An artist, voracious reader, rabid Cubs fan. She'd get the biggest kick out of this Hunley book more than anybody I know. Rabid Cubs fan, outspoken, opinionated, green thumb, no power steering driving, music-loving fashion statement. Thursday morning bowling, interior designing, ice skate loving, Halloween hostess, over-the-top Christmas decorator, neighborly, six-corner shopping enthusiast, complicated, hard-headed, driven, whipcord strong country girl with a city life that died so very young, gone so soon. I often strain to keep the deep files of my mind open to remember what my mom's voice was like, as I just mentioned, as she's been gone now 26 years, and it gets more and more faint as the years roll by. Even so, I can clearly remember her in the stands when I played college football, screaming at the top of her lungs, knock that SOB's block off. She was a force of nature, a bright, quick flame that burned fiercely, and I miss her every day. And that is the truth. I mean, I could stop the podcast right there, and that's who my mom was and is to me to this day. And I have this picture of my folks over on the my Grundig stereo that was there wedding gift to each other in 1958. It was like 100 bucks, 125 bucks, huge money back then. And my sister had this Grundig up in her uh, attic for decades. It was in our house when I was a kid growing up. My dad and mom played the crap out of music from every genre, which gave me a great deep love of music. But I have kind of a little setup over here and there, there are pictures there along with her her dad and uh, my, my dad's folks and things like that. And I always wonder what she would be like now, right? So her time had come and gone, you know, in, in some ways and in many ways, I should say, uh, it was self-induced. My mom was an alcoholic. Uh, she battled the bottle for as long as I could remember. And so much of my life was about trying to understand this thing that I didn't create. And at one point when I was a kid, I thought it must be my fault, right? Because that's how it works. And that is not how it works. I found that out much later. But in spite of that, difficulty, challenge, and disease, basically. She was this incredible person. Just as I mentioned, this force of nature. Uh, I, she was so rangy. You know, when my daughter Amanda has her stature to a great degree. She's tall and thin and whipcord strong and everything my daughter's been through with her kidney transplants and all the rest that goes around it, that strength that she has comes right from my mom. There's no question in my mind. You know, my mom's father, 
Grandpa Carl came over from Sweden on the boat when he was 17, 18, 19, a couple bucks in his pocket, the typical immigrant story, and carved out a life here in the United States. He met Laura, who would become his wife while she, they were at a toy factory or something. I think she worked at a toy factory and he was a mechanic and they met in the same um, apartment building they lived in. They were different places, but they eventually met and got married and my mom came along. And so my mom's one, you know, uh, step removed from the old country, as we call it. And so our house was filled with all this Swedish stuff growing up. Uh, the lefse was like this, this bread type thing, real thin, as I recall. I'm not real, you know, up on the Swedish stuff, but uh, that was there. And she used to make this horrible, horrible thing that supposedly was my grandfather Carl's favorite dish. It was like, like salmon with peas and some sort of red sauce over mashed potatoes just nasty. I mean, you know, I, I, when she would serve this, whenever he was over for dinner, I oh my God, I don't know how I could stomach this stuff. Just parts of fish floating in a river of gravy and no thanks with peas on top. Who eats that? I guess they, he did. And uh, other things, you know, I mentioned about Christmas time, uh, big Swedish influence in our house. And we would have this Christmas goat. They were made of straw and there was a ram, you know, and, uh, they had a red ribbon around the neck, and apparently these goats are a big deal. I don't know what they do with them when you're done, but I remember we had goats, Christmas goats, all over the house during the holidays. And so, you know, so much of her influence back then on me has remained with me to this day. I used to go with her to uh, the florist, and she had a serious green thumb. My mom could grow shit in a box with nothing else in it. I'm telling you, and turn it into beautiful flowers. I don't know how she did it, but she could. I was fascinated by that. And so to this day, uh, her influence on me with the plants and, and, and vegetables, not so much as vegetables back then, because we didn't have a vegetable garden, but I've kind of carried over into the veggies, but the plants for sure, man, I maintain all the plants in the house, the stuff out in the yard. I just find it fascinating and wonderful and a great connection to her. And I remember her saying something to me when I was just a kid, like, if you take care of the green things, they will take care of you. And I think what she meant was, is that they're, they are a, a form of life on the planet. You know, all the things that are green that we like to live, the flowers and such like that. And in taking care of them and in, in, in nurturing for them, you too are nurtured in the process. You're taking care of something that's that needs you to attend to it in order to stay alive and survive and things like that. So I, to this day, I'm just so diligent about the plants. It's kind of a bit obsessive. I'm checking them all the time and I won't let them go. If they're dying, they have to be, you know, totally brown and brittle for me to get rid of them because I'm thinking they could come back. We can, we can save this one. And uh, I remember the first time she bought me a plant, it was actually a, a little cactus. And I had it in my room. I was so proud of that cactus, this little succulent, you know, it was just sitting there. And uh, ever since then, I've just been enamored with it. So I'm always looking, you know, out for the plants and things like that, and watering in the morning and just everything that she used to do in the yard. I can remember her out in the, mar in the yard. We had this uh, big place in, on Berto Avenue after we moved from my grandmother's place over by Riverview Amusement Park. But we had this huge yard in the back with a straight walkway. And my mom had put all these roses and uh, snapdragons and peony bushes and Oh, my hanging baskets. The yard was full. And I could remember being up early on a Saturday morning, which was prime time for cartoons, Johnny Quest and things like that, and hearing the hose going in the yard and looking out the window. And there's my mom taking a drag on a Benson and Hedges Slim. <laughs> God bless her. 
with a hose spraying the crap out of the, and she would just soak the yard over and over again. I don't know where she got all that. You know, her, she spent a lot of summers up in Wisconsin on the farm with her uh, cousins. And I think that rubbed off on her when she came to Chicago to live. And I shouldn't say came to Chicago, she's born here. Um, that just all carried over. You know, those summers up north and uh, being on the farm just was all about the land, you know, things like that. It was very cool. And every now and again, when I'm going through papers, I will come across a drawing of hers. You know, I have boxes of stuff everywhere. And a lot of it's my radio stuff. But every now and again, I'll find a file folder of stuff I've parked away years ago that are things that my mom has drawn. And, you know, I, I want them t safe in there. I really ought to take one out and frame it up because it just... It was just her, and it was all flowers, and it's all nature, and all things like that. So, that's a direct line, you know. Every day, I'm sitting here in my office right now, and I got this giant uh, plant here, and it's about five years old. And during the winter, it kind of, you know, shrinks down on itself. And in the spring and summer, I take it outside; it grows again. And I think of her that way, you know. She'd be proud of me taking care of this this plant that's here, and I just. The further I get away from her being gone all these years, the more appreciation I have for who she was as a person. It took me years to forgive her for not being the person I thought she should be. That was tough. You know, you're growing up as a kid and your parents are these, these icons. And when I realized that they're not, they're just human beings with all their flaws and their great stuff too, it was easier to accept them because that's how I am. I'm flawed, right? We all are, and yet we usually don't see our flaws. We only see anybody else's or everybody else's, as it were. And it's until you look in the mirror and go, I'm still part of them. You know, some of this stuff runs downhill um, is when I was able to fully accept that and realize that she had her own journey to take and that while it, alcohol is not a problem for me in my life, ask anybody I can sit and do shots with, I don't need to carry it over because I don't have anything in my life even though I've been through some stuff that was so painful that I turned to alcohol to make it better. And I think that's what happened for my mom. I still don't, to this day, know what that leverage point was. I probably never will, and it really doesn't matter. But that's what her choice was back then. And what she thought was her friend that was in a bottle that made her feel better eventually became her worst enemy. And then that becomes compound interest of the worst kind, and you can't get out of it. My dad, unfortunately, didn't know much better, so he enabled her to stay that way. And that's what that whole enabling thing is about. So I got an up-close, front-row view of how not to do it. And I think that is one of the great lessons that my mom, through her difficulty, gave me to carry on with. And I, I told somebody in a, an interview I did recently, you know, all things that I do, the books that I write, the talks that I've given, uh, the, for sure, this show and all the other radio shows, it's somewhere in all of that is me trying to remind people that there's a better way to go about things. When the shit's hitting the fan and it does for everybody, it's better to be behind the fan and then in front of the fan. And you see people who keep dropping the shit and get hit, dropping the shit, and they wonder where the shit's coming from, except they're the ones that are dropping the shit. So I like to think that my mom's difficulty with alcohol and the challenges that she had growing up and the difficulty that was in her marriage with my dad from that uh, alcohol thing, uh, that I did not waste it, that I took that on as something that had value. And I could say, okay, well, I don't know why this went this way, but maybe someone listened to the show, maybe somebody reading one of my books, maybe somebody hearing one of my TED Talks or whatever, that they will make a different choice. And so for me, I could not save her from herself. You get real clear on that after a while. 
but you may be able to impart words, even a song, something to someone at the right time in the right place for the right reason that they then can save themselves. And to me, that's kind of the deal. You know, that I gave a shit enough about my mom's suffering to turn it into something for someone else that may help them. And I think that's like in the long run, the biggest lesson I've, I, I learned from her. It's the biggest takeaway that I have. And on the other side of it, I am not surprised and she wouldn't be surprised. She'd not live long enough for, uh, you know, to, to be witness to this quote success that I've had. She died in January of 97 and I went on the air in August of 97. So she wasn't here when I started in radio. She was long gone, obviously, when books started coming and all the rest of this stuff followed. I think she'd get a huge kick out of it. And she used to say to me things like she'd be sitting in the chair in the living room with a cigarette and a drink. And I had, you know, come home from a game at high school or even college. And mostly, obviously, a road game. If they were home games, my parents were in every game. And as I mentioned, you could hear her yelling from the stage, kill that bastard. <laughs> Just hilarious. You know, my mom was was five seven, about a buck twenty-five. But she talked like she was 6'2", 240. And I got the biggest kick out of that. Uh, but I remember coming back and telling, you know, how'd the game go? And I said, well, we were here. We did this. And did you play? I played like about 25 plays, 30 plays. And it was great. And especially when I was a freshman, you know, I was, I was low into the totem pole. But I would share this stuff with her. And she'd start critiquing my play on the football field. She wasn't even there. Or even if she was there, she'd start critiquing it afterwards. And then at the end of that, she'd always say, I'm your biggest critic, son, but I'm also your biggest fan. And I started thinking that there's a connection there. A, my mom never played a sport in her life that I know of. B, for sure, she didn't play football anywhere. And B, I'm like, what makes you the determining factor? You know, my Vince Lombardi. Why do you get to chew my ass and then tell me how I'm going to be better? But it worked. The psychology worked a little bit. She would literally say things like, you got to do this, this, and this, and this. From watching me on the field that I couldn't see. And then later that night at dinner or after dinner, she'd say, you know, Butch, I, that was my nickname growing up. And I, you know, if people call me, I have three names, Butch, Augie, and John. And if I hear Butch, I know where people knew me from. If I hear Augie, it's kind of like the, the early high school, college years. And John is, you know, who I am now. It's a big deal. But she'd call me Butch and no one at home called me John. And she'd say, Butch. Here's what you got to do. The next time that that tackle comes out, you need to take it. And I'm like, wait, what, what, ma? But she was right a lot of times. And I really, really got a kick out of that. Really something. My dad didn't say anything. You know, he, I think he knew better. He wasn't going to get in the way. But my mom was very opinionated, very forward person. And while she was not worldly like being in the world, I'm pretty sure my mom never went on an airplane. She may have been on a train, I think, maybe from Chicago to the to the north, you know, maybe Appleton or Milwaukee, I don't know. But I don't think she ever really left within like a four or 500 mile radius of uh, the Fox Valley and the Chicagoland area her entire life that I know of. So she wasn't out in the world, you know, but she was worldly it, from reading mostly. And uh, back then we only had four or five channels on television. It's not a lot of help there, but from reading, she had become very worldly and very wise in that, despite the challenges that she faced. So we would have these long, intimate, deep discussions, usually late on a Friday night, about human ethics and what's going on in the Sudan and what about in the Australian outback when this happens and some of the history of England and fascinating things to me only because my mom knew them. And I didn't, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica probably was her, was her Wikipedia back in the day. 
So all of these conglomerate pieces, I think, rubbed off on me in a way that I became a very forward person. You know, uh, I, you, you can't be in radio for this long and, and be a shrinking violet. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. So I was, you know, kind of followed in her footsteps. If my mom could have had a microphone in front of her, she might have had a career. Let's put it that way. So I think some of that stuff ran downhill as well. You know, saying, hey, hold on an effing second here. Let's take a look at this instead of just looking at this. And when you do that, you know, half the people think you're an idiot. The other half are like, eh, maybe that's a good idea. So it's the law of averages. And my mom was a, I was a captive audience of one with her. You know, my dad just kind of nodded his head and stuff and read his books and things. And that was fine. But she had a captive audience in me. And I really thought that she was very, very worldly. And then I decided, I guess, at some point that I would be in the world. You know, I've traveled more in my life than I think anybody in my family prior to me ever has. My daughter, a bit now. My son, not so much. So I, you know, I'm like the most traveled guy in the in the family. Different countries, different peoples, all that stuff. And I think that came out of her love of being in the world through the printed word. I'm just able to be out in the world, you know, and kinesthetically and just be a part of it and, and with tactile feeling and, you know, fly. She'd have got the biggest kick, you know, for about five years. I don't think it's like this anymore. For about five years, I was huge in Trinidad and Tobago. I'm not kidding. I, uh, I gave a talk in Miami and the owner of a radio station in Miami and also owned a, a cluster of stations in Trinidad had me come down to TNT as it's called. And I gave a talk to some business down there, like an insurance thing that they sponsored. And all of a sudden I was like freaking Elvis in Trinidad. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, it was just, I don't even know how it happened, but I mean, I, I went, people took me to dinners. It was, it was a big deal. And I went back three or four times. They paid me ridiculous amounts of money. I kept saying, yes, of course I'm going back. You're going to write that check. Okay. I'm in. And I felt so blessed and lucky to do that. And that what I was talking about as much of what I, as what I talk about now, what I talk about on the radio and written my books, and it was just another audience, but it happened to be below the equator. And if you'd have told anybody I grew up with that one day I'd be in Trinidad and Tobago giving a talk in front of 5,000 people, I thought they'd be like, what are you smoking, right? But a lot, so much of this stuff has happened, I think, is just an offshoot of my mom's influence on me. And it, I, to this day, every time I turn this microphone on, I could hear her, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> but I'm also your biggest critic. So I got to kind of watch what I do here. Uh, and yet, just got to let it fly. And finally, I think the thing that uh, that I, am, I take away the most from my mom was uh, her death. She's only 59 years old when she passed away. And uh, it was so predictable that that was going to happen. It was not a shock to anybody in our family. At that time, we had kind of grown apart a bit Um there was, there was many times at holidays, I did not want to be around her or my dad. And it was, it was kind of like, a. this is going to happen sooner rather than later. My mom doesn't get a long life. And here's the reasons why you can't drink like she did and be in the pain that she was and live to be 90. I just don't see that working out for most people. So before we moved to the upper peninsula of Michigan was the last time I saw her, that would have been in 96. That would have been in the, uh, like September of 96 just a few minutes before she passed away and she was in really bad shape and we stopped at the house to see her. And, you know, this whole move to Michigan was, was, was another, the universe is moving me and, and my family at the time in a new direction. You know, everything I'd done in Chicago ended, I couldn't figure out what to do. Uh, 
some amazing things happen. You can read about it in every one of the books I've written about how all that took place. And I remember stopping to see my mom and dad before we left. And our kids were just little six and four. And uh, my wife at the time and I stopped to see grandma and grandpa and we, we talked with them. And my mom gave me a hug to that this day I remember felt like you're in the right direction, kid. Don't worry about me. I, I can't explain it except for that, that you're in the right direction, that this is okay, even though we didn't talk much. And we left. And like I said, just a few months later in January of 97, uh, I was in the motel. My sister called the motel from home and said that mom had passed away. And I remember just basically like, okay, thanks. I'll call you back. Uh, my wife at the time was at work. The kids were in school. I was trying to get my shit in one sock after figuring out what am I doing in a motel. Again, long before radio and all this other stuff was waiting for me. And I went back to the room and I laid down. I was just real heavy. I had to take a nap. I laid down and in, the, in that nap, I had a dream. Clear as day. I mean, like it, like it was happening right that second. And in the dream, I'm sitting on the front porch of our house on Berto Avenue. I'm on a swing that we, my mom had set up. And I'm swinging back and forth, and I'm seeing everything through my eyes. And out of the corner, from the right side of the frame, comes my mom walking on the sidewalk, looking just like she did in 1967, before all the, the shit kind of hit the fan for her. Blonde hair, tan, you know, with her, her garden clothes on, and, and just looking remarkable and wonderful. And she walks up to the sidewalk and turns it, looks at me. And the sidewalk at that time was, you know, it's probably 20 feet away from the house. And she turns, looks at me and all of a sudden her face comes real close to mine. And she says, I'm okay. And it's okay. And I, I woke up. What, what was that? What was that? And I fell back asleep immediately. Had the same dream again as if to solidify it. I'm okay. And it's okay. And so all of a sudden, any sadness I had about her death just evaporated. It was just the most amazing thing. And, you know, I'm sure you could find some dream experts would pick apart this, that your subconscious, but I don't give a shit about that. My mom came and told me it was okay. That's all I know. It's all I needed. So we drive down to Chicago and we get to my sister's house and my former brother-in-law's gone my sister's gone and I pull up to the house and I'm, you know, it's just me. And I walk in as I'm walking up to the front steps, I see my dad inside standing there sobbing by himself. And I'm thinking, holy shit, the old man's, you know, now what? And again, my mom and dad and I were not on the best of terms when she passed away. And I walked in, I thought, Butch, if you screw this, I almost said the F-bomb, but I'm, even I have limits sometimes. Butch, if you screw this up, it's the rest of his life and yours together will not be good. Forgive him. Forgive it for him, forgive it for her, and forgive it for yourself. And so I did that. I walked into the room. My dad turned and looked at me. He's crying. He lost this woman he adored for years through thick and thin. And even though that he, you know, there was things I, they did that I didn't like, that's not my job to, to decide that. My job was to say, will I forgive him or not? And so I did. I walked in. I said, Dad, I forgive you. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry she's gone. And we just hugged each other. And from that moment on, even through the funeral and all the rest of it, um, things got better between us. And in some ways, her death was the catalyst for my dad and I to find ourselves together as father and son until he passed 
a few years later in 04. So, and, and, and that last year of his life was remarkable. You know, I mean, I've been on the radio. I was becoming a thing in Michigan. I had donated a kidney to Amanda in 2002. And then in 03, I'm like, I'm just out of gas. So I'm going to take a little bit of time off. And I took a couple months off and I started working on my first book. And I spent the next year with my dad a lot. And we took one final trip to Appleton, Wisconsin from Chicago. And I remember driving up there and he's asleep in the car seat next to me, you know, in the, in the passenger seat. And I'm thinking, if this isn't full circle, right, how many times did he drive north? And I'm sleeping in the seat, right? And we made the visits and saw all the, the cousins. And, you know, he was in pretty bad shape at that point. But that was a full circle for him. It was complete with him. It was complete with my mom. And I got to tell you, tying off those knots saved me from probably having to deal with this shit for the rest of my life. So the big takeaway from my mom is about forgiveness in the end. She's been gone 26 years this January. Her picture is right over there. There's Carol right there. And I think she was my greatest teacher in so many ways for the most important things about not letting the, the pain dictate your life, about not turning to something that's worse for you than better, uh, certainly about being forward and speaking your mind, whether people F and agree with you or not, do it. Just do it. She didn't do it with a microphone. I happen to, and I think that's a direct download from her. And of course, finally, this whole forgiveness thing. I know people that haven't forgiven their parents and their parents have been gone for a half century and they carry that weight still to this day. As if we are all somehow perfect pillars of, of uh, you know, the bastion of truth and how to live a life. Everybody's got their shit everybody's got their shit. It depends how you deal with it or if the shit deals with you. And my mom didn't deal with her shit, so it dealt with her. That I learned to switch. Deal with it. And I've fallen short many times. I got caught up in many times. There was a time in my life, full disclosure, you know, you grow up as a kid of an alcoholic, you do things to deflect away from that. A lot of the kids teased me when I was a kid. Ah, oh, good, Butch's mom's going to get another drink. That hurt a lot. So I would lie in order to divert things from that. Well, yeah, we're really doing this over here. Oh, let's, so I can talk about this over here, which was never going to happen. It was a diversion from the truth. And it took me years to get rid of that habit. It wasn't all the time, but there's been a couple times in my life that I really had to pay the price for not telling the truth. It, was, it became a, a mechanism for me when something was difficult to not address the truth. And after a couple times where it really cost me, i like, that's enough. That's a holdover from when I was a little kid. And it hurts so much, so I would not tell the truth. I would not deal with it. And now I'm a 190. Forget a 180. I'm a freaking 190. Deal with it now, no matter how hard it is or how difficult it is. And you're better off in the long run. A lot of lessons from an incredible lady, my mom. Her favorite singer in the whole world was Louis Armstrong. And this was her favorite song. So for my mom and all the moms that are out there, and even the ones that aren't on this side of the... Uh, the, the plane of existence anymore. Happy Mother's Day, and thank you. Some of you young folks been saying to me, hey, Pops, what do you mean, what a wonderful world? How about all them wars all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? They ain't so wonderful either. How about listening to old Pops for a minute? Seems to me it ain't the world that's so bad. 
but what we are doing to it. And all I'm saying is, see what a wonderful world it would be if only we'd give it a chance. Love, baby, love. That's the secret. Yeah. If lots more of us loved each other, we'd solve lots more problems. And then this world would be a guesser. That's why old pops keeps saying. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky. Also on the faces of people going by, I see friends shaking hands, saying, "How do you do?" They're really saying, "I love you." I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They're like much more. I never knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful. World.